Wow, what a great song. Wasn't that great? Aren't you glad God's big enough for whatever it is you're facing and whatever it is that you will face or have faced? Or I'm grateful for, for God's grace and His blessing. I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew in chapter 6. Let me thank you for your welcoming spirit and how much I have enjoyed uh, just being here. And uh, so many kind remarks and so many people asking me if I needed anything. And I'm grateful for that and your kind consideration. There's a great spirit here. And I pray that you never lose that. And I hope you always make folks that come on campus welcome. And, and uh, I'm thankful. Had a great time yesterday in practical theology. And um, just enjoyed getting to meet some of you and hang out. Enjoyed the basketball game last night. It was great. Uh, effort, and uh, I know the results wasn't what you wanted, but it was fun to be there and fun to watch your spirit carry over even to the, to the ball court, and uh, it was a great time. So thank you for hosting me. I'm so grateful for Dr. Chapel, Dr. R., Dr. Getz, Brother Weaver, so many guys that are friends of mine here, and Brother Chapel has been a dear friend, and uh, I'm so thankful for his influence in my life as well as yours. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to chapter 5, just real quick, if you, if you ever go to the Holy Land, what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to show you sort of an amphitheater-looking section of the Sea of Galilee. And the picture they're going to paint for you is that Jesus is there, and he's got this great multitude, and, and he's teaching the multitude. And so you've got sort of the amphitheater setting there, and, and that's the picture of him teaching the multitude. But it's amazing how the Bible adds clarification to a lot of things that we think, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. So chapter number five, it begins, and it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So, so he's, not, he's not teaching the multitudes here. He's teaching his followers. Right? He's not burdening down unregenerate multitude with kingdom principles. He's got the people that are following him, whose hearts are after him and whose lives have been given to him. And so he's, he's going to now give them some expectations that he has of them. And so in chapter number six is where we want to start, if, if you would. And, and with that thought in mind, we'll, we'll read some scripture. He says to them, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, it's talking about alms here. Uh, part of that is included in a group of righteous acts, but the main part that's focused here is the giving. So he's talking about money here. He's talking about the offerings that they give. In verse 2, he says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily, verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. Let me just stop and say this. You've got to make up your mind where you want your rewards. And if you want to sound trumpets and live for the play, praise and the applause of men, then enjoy everything you get, because that's what you're going to get. Okay. So we have to decide whether we want to live for now or whether we want to live for, for there. Who we're doing this for, for men or for God? And so uh, he, he draws that out. They have their reward. They get what, they, what they've got coming now. Verse 3, But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And here's the principle. 
and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now in the next verse, he, he approaches another subject and he says in verse five, he, he talks about prayer. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. There's that thought again. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And here's that same thought. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. And then, then in verse 8 through verse 15, he gives what we call the model prayer. Okay, there's six parts of that. You pray five minutes for each part, you prayed 30 minutes. Ten minutes each part, you prayed an hour. Sometimes I think the reason we're so disorganized in our prayer life or, or so weak in our prayer life is, is because we're disorganized, okay? And so he gives us six parts that we put together for a prayer, and it helps us organize our prayer with lines of demarcation, and uh, it's, it's a structure of prayer. Then in verse 16, he changes the subject yet again. Same principles, different subject. Now he's going to talk about fasting. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And here it is again. Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So three subjects, giving, praying, and fasting. And the principle is the same. Don't do it to be seen of men. If you do, you've got your reward. Do it for your Father because realize that your Father which sees in secret will reward you openly. Let's pray. Father, help us today, we pray. Thank you, God, for the great privilege of being here. Thank you for... Uh, Lord, those that have gathered in this place, who's given their life to serve you in, in this time of preparation, I pray that you would bless them, have your hand upon their life. Lord, raise out of this place a great army of people that will impact this lost and dying world with the truth of your love through your gospel. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In 1976, there was a man by the name of David Berkowitz who was employed as a postal worker in New York City. He was 23 years old and attended a Baptist church. He was well thought of by his fellow workers. I, I remember reading the article uh, about how uh, they talked about he got along with everybody. He was such a conscientious worker, never caused any trouble, never complained to his supervisors, got along with everybody. The job that he did was exemplary, and he was just absolutely an employee that they were so happy that they had. And uh, uh, his public life, the, the person that everybody thought they knew was absolutely above reproach. But when he would clock out of the postal uh, office there in New York City, he would go home to a, an apartment where, where he would spend hours after work uh, just ruminating and filling his mind with pornographic filth. He had, as they searched his apartment later, it was filled with all sorts of sleazy paraphernalia, videotapes and magazines, and he would sit there for hours filling his mind with that filth. 
Then he reached a point where he would go to a drawer and take out from that a 44 Magnum handgun. He would slip out into the darkness of New York City night and he would, he would go to the parks where couples would sit and talk and he would slip up to them uh, in that darkness until the right moment uh, came and there with a cold and calculated calmness he would pull the trigger on that 44 Magnum handgun and blow them into eternity. After the murder, he would mail letters out to radio stations in the area or television stations, and he would mock the police for not being able to find him. And, and he would sign his letters uh, to the authorities, the son of Sam. And from July of 1976 until his arrest in August of 1977, David Berkowitz literally held New York State and New York City in a reign of terror. When he was finally caught, his co-workers were just shocked. They could not believe that this unassuming man that worked right with them, that had lunch with them, and that, that, that talked to them in his quiet voice, they could not believe that he was the infamous serial killer uh, that, that, had, that had brought New York City to its knees. The people that lived with him in the apartment complex were shocked, wouldn't you be, that there was a serial killer that they greeted in the mornings and saw on the weekends and the lady in that, that ran the apartment complex talked about how he was always on time with his rent, that he never complained and that everybody there got along with him. They just remembered a quiet man that would nod and have few words to them as they walked past, but he held a city in fear. In his public life, he was David Berkowitz, but in his secret life, he was the son of Sam. Now, we, we're here. We, we come from different places. There's a few folks from Idaho. I'm originally from Georgia. Go dogs. No? Okay. All right. But anyhow. Yeah, so, so we come from different backgrounds. There's different personality traits and different dynamics in our life. And, and in, in so many different roads and avenues have brought us here. But the one thing that we all have in common is simply this, and that is that every single one of us have a public life and the secret life. Every one of us. The public life is the you that everybody sees. It's what people think you are. And the secret life is the you that only you and God really know about. We all have that. And I think that we need to be reminded that it's very easy in a Bible college and in the ministry as I am, it's very easy to polish the public image and to neglect the inner man. And the worst kind of deception in the world is self-deception. We can actually begin to believe and write and get sold on our own press clippings when we're the one that's writing them. We can, we can become so impressed with our own image. We can become so mesmerized by the man in the mirror that we actually believe we are who people think we are. And I want to just tell you that when you've been in the ministry very long, it's, it's like second nature. You know how to get up. You know the mannerisms you're supposed to have. You know the lingo of church. You know all the cliches that we have. And it's easy sometimes to present yourself in a manner that covers up for, it's a facade. It covers up for a, a really messed up life, a, the public image and the the, the secret life so oftentimes can be so far apart that we can deceive ourselves that we are what people think we are. Spurgeon 
said, beware of no man more than yourself, for we carry our worst enemies within us. And I want to tell you that is so very true. Thy father which seeth in secret. And I think it would do us well to take inventory of exactly what it is that God sees in the secret places of our life when, when, when no one is near and no one is watching. You know, you know what this is teaching? Think, think of this. Thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Did you know that did you know that the public blessings that God places upon your life are in direct relation to, to, to your secret life, to how you are with him in the quiet times of your life? Everything we are, the, the public blessing is based upon secret consecration and obedience. And I think that sometimes we get it backwards. We learn, we learn how to promote and do to polish and practice the, the ministry me, the pastor me, the, the preacher me, the pulpiteer me, the public me, the church me, the visible me. So we learn how we learn how we're to approach people. We learn how we're to enter the pulpit and exit the pulpit. And we learn we learn how to project our voice and we, we learn how to dress and 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 how to somehow uh, be impressive because we know that the first impression is also oftentimes the, the the most lasting impression. And so we get all that down and we memorize that. And yet Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit. Where, Paul? In the inner man. That's where it begins, in the secret place. That's the only way that our public image has any value whatsoever. You can stand behind a pulpit and, and you learn to do it long enough, you can preach to people and you know where to put voice inflections in and yet on the inside there's nothing there. We're empty. Our secret life is a facade. I think that's the indictment. Is it not what Jesus brought to the religionists of his day in Matthew chapter 23 verse 27 when he said, One to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. You know what he's saying? You look good on the outside, but you stink on the inside. Jesus is saying, the closer I get to you, the worse you smell. You're whited. You look great. You've got it all memorized. You've got it all polished. It's all rehearsed. But the closer I get to who you really are, Jesus said, I realize that on the inside there's corruption going on. Psalm 44, verse 21, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Ezekiel eleven five. For I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. He knows our thought life. He sees our thought life as... as as, as though it's an open book. That's a sobering thought. That God doesn't just know who I am. He knows my thoughts. He knows my intents. Listen to me. He knows the motives behind why I do what I'm doing. And that's why when we stand before him at the Bema seat, there's a lot of things, wood, hay, and stubble, that are going to be consumed by his all-knowing eyes. Remember in Revelation, uh, his eyes were, were as a fire. And I believe that when we stand before him, that, that his, his all-knowing eyes are going to reveal the reasons why we do what we do. And we can do good things, and yet do them for the wrong reason. 
We can stand up and fill our place and you can preach in the flesh. You can teach in the flesh. You can work in the flesh, soul win in the flesh. There's so many things that we can do under the authority and the auspices of the flesh. But God, God says, I know why you're doing what you do. It's, it was in the backfields. Remember where no one saw, no crowds cheered. Nobody wrote a song for him then when David slew the lion and, and slew the bear. And that ultimately led to his public blessing in the Valley of Elah when he slew the giant. Remember Saul called him up and said, look, this guy's been fighting longer than you've been alive. Why should I, why should I send you out? And David said, two reasons. Because in the backfields watching my father's sheep, I slew a lion and slew a bear. And so he waded into the valley with five smooth stones and, and, he, and he brought a giant. The giant came to him uh, by force. David went by faith and he did so in the name of the Lord his God. And he won the victory that day. But remember this, that, 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 that David on a rooftop embraced the image of Bathsheba in his secret life. And his entire world imploded around him. And in many ways, he never recovered. And so the public blessing of, of Elah was based upon his secret consecration in the backfields. But there on the secret life of that rooftop, his entire life was altered. Lost the life of his son. A fourfold, a fourfold payment was placed because of his sin. I'm just going to tell you if we are victorious in our secret life, then God promises us the, the, the open blessing that only he can give. If our secret life is faulty, it leads to tragic results. Go with me, would you, to Psalm 19? Would you, would you jump over there real quick? Psalm 19, let me show you a couple of verses of Scripture that I think are important. Psalm 19. Notice verse number 12. Who can understand his errors... David says, watch, cleanse thou me from what? Secret faults. What are secret faults? They're things that we keep hidden. They're things that nobody sees, nobody knows. Okay. It's the you that's out of sight. It's the you in the shadows. David said, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant from what? Presumptuous sins. What are presumptuous sins? Well, we've got secret faults, the things we keep hidden. Then there's presumptuous sins. Those are the things that we are foolishly arrogant to think somehow I can handle this. And in reality, they wind up handling us. You know, they're sins that we allow in our life because we don't consider them to be big sins. And so we think that we're in control. And, and, and yet David said, let them not have dominion over me. He knows, he knows that if his presumptuous sins remain, if the secret sins become presumptuous where he feels like he can handle those, he knows that sooner or later those things will take dominion of his life. And then he says, and then shall I be upright. And I shall be innocent of the great transgression. That's talking about being shipwrecked. And so David is showing here a progression, the secret, the secret faults, the presumptuous sins. What does that lead to? It leads to the greater transgression. Guys, listen to me. You want to save your marriage? You want to save your ministry? Young lady, listen. You want to, you want to save your home? Then stay away from the secret sins. The, 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 the corruption that enters into the secret part of our life, 
Don't allow that. And, and in doing so, in cutting it off early, it keeps you from falling into the greater transgression. I went to preach a revival in a town in Georgia called Albany. It's spelled Albany, but if you get there, they call it Albany. So in Albany, Georgia, there's an Albany State University there. There's a Flint River that, fl that flows through Albany. The flood stage of the Flint River is 18 feet. During this particular rainstorm, it crested out at 42 feet. The pastor that I was preaching revival for took me down to Albany State University, and above the second story window was the water line. It flooded the second story. I, I remember him riding me down. I, I saw, you may not remember what a Kmart is, but anyhow, he took me down and showed me a Kmart, and, and the only thing you could see on the Kmart was the flat roof of it, and it became a sort of a meeting place for the seagulls of the area. Entire store flooded. He said, I want to show you something else. So we, we, we were riding down a road and I could see barriers up where cars couldn't go any further. And, and I could see through the barrier, just some, a little odd looking, like a roof of a house in the middle of a road. So we got out of the car, he parked and we walked down there and we went around the barriers and walked over and there was this gigantic sinkhole. And one house was sitting in it, it was sort of cocked to the side and you could tell things were breaking apart in that house. Next door was another house, just settled perfectly on the ground. There was a Ford F-150, I'll never forget, parked in the driveway, a swing set in the backyard that was just sitting there just like the kids had just been playing on it. Front porch was there, screen door was shut, just typical southern home. And he said to me this, he said, what they didn't know that was underneath these houses, there was a limestone fault and when the water began to build up, by the way, the pressure got so great that, that, that um, caskets were literally popping out of the ground, flowing down the Flint River. And so they had to get men in their pickup trucks to go and, and uh, put nets around them and tie them to trees so that later they could be reinterned back into their, in, into their cemetery plot. And so that water pressure that rose up uh, uh, began to eat away at that limestone fault. And all of a sudden now the ground beneath it began to cave in. And here's two houses that, that just, just a, a day or so before the rain began, if you had seen those, everything would have looked normal. People living there, people cooking there, kids playing in the yard in the swing set, everybody just living as normal. But underneath that house was a limestone fault. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've buried my face in a carpet and wept over friends of mine that one minute were there, they were in their church, they were preaching the word, they were serving God. Some guys that we prayed together uh, side by side in Bible college and, and cried out for God's power on our life when we graduated, how God could use us. And now all of a sudden they're not where they were. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose for them. It's just that what happened in their life is that they allowed, they allowed a fault beneath them in their secret life. And sooner or later, sooner or later, if we allow that in our life, rather than getting right, you know where we need revival? We need revival in the secret part of who we are. It's where true revival takes place. And the limestone fault broke way. And they sink before our eyes. I've had church members that one Sunday were in church. And by the time the next Sunday rolled around, their entire life had caved in. And I have the broken hearted 
responsibility to go sit and look at them and weep with their children and try to comfort their wife or comfort their husband. I've, I've had kids sit on the floor with me and sob their eyes out and wonder why my dad, why my mom, why, why did this happen to us? It's because long before the implosion ever took place, there were things allowed into the secret life that should not have been allowed there. The law says, I'm concerned with the public life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, I'm concerned with the secret life. Uh, don't even lust after a woman in your heart. The law says, I, I'm concerned with the public life. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, I'm concerned with the secret life. Don't even hate, hate your brother in your heart. Paul instructed the uh, Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he said, take heed to yourself and to all the flock. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you, when, when you leave this place and, and you get to where you're out and you've got a flock and you're ministering to people, your credentials for doing that is that you yourself are taking heed, first of all, to you. You have no true authority to help others. How can you, how can you help other people's home when your home is, is falling apart, you see? And so take heed to thyself. Your greatest commodity is you. The man in the mirror, make sure that you're right with God so that you will have the ability and the credentials to help other people. If you're feeding the flock and starving yourself, you've got it all backwards. He said to Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. We pride ourselves in our doctrine. But can I remind you of the fact if you've got good doctrine and yet, and yet down on the inside, you're not taking heed to yourself, you're not, you're not really truly deeply right with God, then all you have is head knowledge of things that are true, but your life is false. And sometimes we can criticize a crowd that may not be just like us because their doctrine isn't exactly as ours are, but I want to just tell you, the reality of the matter is you can have good doctrine and poor living all wrapped up in the same person. We can be aggressive in our outreach and we can implement all the latest programs and have a cutting edge media ministry. We can have administrative genius. We can be polished in our preaching and first class in our presentation. We can raise the support that we need to take care of our family, but if our secret life is faulty, our public ministry sooner or later will cave in. Sooner or later it's going to happen. It's not the Mormons that are going to stop you. I, I'm in an area where there's a greater percentage of Mormons uh, in Idaho per capita than in Utah. It's not the Mormons going to stop you. It's not City Hall. It's not the liberal governor. The reality of the thing, the matter is this. It's not the indifference of our culture. The thing that will stop us is if our secret life doesn't evoke the public blessing of God. Just because you have a large and successful ministry does not mean that you have a satisfied soul. It's that quiet walk, that secret walk. We confuse sometimes our work for God with our walk with God. Young people, look at me. Please do not become content to know God secondhand. I was talking to Dr. R about my pastor, Cecil Hodges, at Bible Baptist in Savannah. I remember traveling with him as a young preacher. We would go to Southwide Fellowships, and I remember as he walked in, all the preachers would be saying, Hey, Cecil, how are you? And they'd be talking back and forth. i sit in his office, and Curtis Hudson call on the phone, and he'd say, Hey, Kurt, I heard they're running... I'm I-75 through your baptistry now. 
And just listening to those guys talk, I've sat at tables with him and Lee Robertson and listened to them talk and, and, and great preachers around. And I remember as a young guy walking with my, with my pastor and knowing that my pastor was somebody whose, whose hand uh, God had placed his hand, whose head God had placed his hand upon. But you know what I discovered one day? That did nothing for me. Made me proud of my preacher and I'm thankful for his influence in my life, but there had to come a time in my life where I realized that it wasn't good enough to know a man that knew God, to walk with a man that walked with God, to rub shoulders with a man that was in his, in his private life uh, on fire for God. I, I, I had to get to a place to where I realized that, that it was my life, my own walk with God that was so important in my life. Ezekiel chapter 8, would you go there real quickly? Ezekiel chapter number 8. Fascinating chapter. Ezekiel's being led around and, and God's, God's going to show him in sacred scenes things that no one else can see. He's going to reveal to him the heart of the people that he's ministering to. In Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 7 Ezekiel says, and he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And then said he unto me, son of man, dig in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said, go in. Behold the wicked abominations that they do here. And so I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about, those images that were there. Verse 11, and there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, and every man his censer, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord forsa hath forsaken the earth. Our secret life goes beyond what we are in the pulpit and what the men in our circle of fellowship, what our fellow students, what the people that live in the dorm think of us. It goes to the place what God knows we are. And I want to tell you, if we need, if we need God to move us in any place in our life, it's in the chamber of our imagery. It's in that hidden place where no one else can go but you and God. And if you can't get transparent with God there, you'll never be transparent at all. We've got to get right there. Because everything we do for God, every step we take for the Lord from this time on, it hinges upon what we are. He said, these are the leaders. These are the ancients of the house of Israel. Do you see what they're doing? They say you can walk out at night and look up into the sky and you can see the light of a solar star that actually burned out 20 years before. But because of the distance, you're see, still seeing the light, but the star no longer truly burns. To the people of the church at Sardis, it was said, Thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. The lights were on, but nobody was really there. I pray that we'll never get to the place to where we're living just a name. I pray that there will be more substance to us than that. I heard an illustration years ago of a football team that was traveling to play an interstate rival. The two, the two schools were separated by a mountain range. And so in order to get there, they had to load the bus and climb the mountain range and begin to go down the other side and they'd get ready and play their game. 
But a problem occurred when they started on the downhill side of the mountain range. The bus driver very quickly realized that he had lost the brakes. There were no brakes on the bus. He began to struggle and then he looked back to the coach who was seated behind him and he said to the coach, he said, we don't have any brakes, coach. And the coach yelled to the guys behind him and said, put, grab the seat in front of you and, and put your head down as close to your knees as you can. We don't have brakes. The coach said later that he could, as they began to wrestle that and, and, and the, the force of the turns began to rock the, the bus, he said he, he began to hear gasp and sobs coming from these big football players that were ready to go to battle on the field, but they weren't ready to lose their life. And he said, miraculously, the driver got it down to a place to where there was a bit of an incline and, and, and the bus rocked up and, 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 and slowed down and he was able to put it against the wall, scrape the bus against the wall of the mountain and it, it slowed it down enough to stop. And he said, there was literally guys losing their food over what they had just been through because of the rush of adrenaline. On their way down that mountainside, the coach said he realized that something had flown past his head, hit the windshield of the bus, and fell on the floor. He said, I thought nothing about it until we had stopped, and then I glanced down and realized it was a pornographic magazine. He said, I scooped it up and rolled it up, and he said, gave everybody a moment to settle down. I got up and walked up one side of the bus and said, son, is this yours? 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 All the way down one side. He said, I got about a quarter of the way up the, the right side of the bus. And he said, there was a young man sitting next to the window. His eyes immediately filled with tears. His lip began to quiver and he said, yes, coach, it's mine. He said, I'm going to be honest, it's mine. And the coach said, this is against our rules. You know that you're going to pay. There will be a price for this. But I want to ask you a question. Why in the world, when we were coming down the mountainside, did you throw this magazine to the front of the bus? And this is what the boy said. I thought we were going over. There's no way I thought we would survive. And I knew that when they found me, this would be found in my duffel bag. And it would break my mother's heart. And so rather than keeping it there, I took it out and threw it to the front of the bus. Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there can be things in our life that if we knew Jesus was coming back today, that's exactly what we'd do. We'd throw him to the front. We'd get rid of him because we, we don't want to face him with that in our life. And look, it, it, it doesn't have to be something that's, that, 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 that we may consider the, the depth of pornography. Could be. But it could, be, it could be a gossiping heart. It could be a bitter attitude where we've complained about everything that has been brought our way in the last little while. It, it could be so many things in our secret life that aren't in line with God's word and God's will for who we are. Can I just encourage you today, if you've got something like that in your life, to just throw it to the front of the bus and get your chambers of imagery squared up with God, you'll be, you'll be much happier if you're not carrying something in the shadows that you wouldn't want known in the open.